I wanted to make one more announcement uh, before we get started looking at the scriptures together. This is actually going to be my last week with you for a f- just for a few weeks. I'm going to be gone for three weeks. Yeah, thank you. So, uh, <laughs> so pray for me because I'm really going to miss you. There's probably going to be a lot of tears while I'm gone. Um, so pray for me. The, the elders have graciously given me an extra week of conference time this year. I, I take a week every year for ongoing education. They give me an extra week this year. Um, kind of in celebration of seven years as a church. Uh, they're giving me a little extended time. Yes, you can clap for that, a little small clapping. Um, so we've been here seven years now. We're not a baby anymore. We're, we're now in an awkward adolescent church. And uh, so it, just in view of that, we felt like it would be good for me to get away for a little while just for, for prayer, for study. I'll be spending two weeks doing educational things a, a week uh, at Dallas Seminary by myself and come back and get the family and then be away with them. One of those weeks will be with the with a kind of leadership consultant coach who will be doing some training with me and then another week just goofing off with my family. So I uh, pray that that time would be uh, fruitful for us. I always take these weeks here and there away from you guys. I've just never taken three weeks all at once. So that kind of that's the part that makes me a little, a little nervous, but we're praying that it will be a fruitful time and a good time. And uh, as you can see, I'm working on my beard to get you ready for uh, Stephen Watson preaching to you the next couple of weeks. just wanted you to warm up to him a little more, so trying it out. The only problem is he can grow a beard on both sides of his face. I can only grow a beard on one side of my face. It's kind of frustrating. But we're continuing our series in 1 John. Uh, the series, I'm just going to stand like this the whole time. Uh, the series is uh, in 1 John chapter 4. If you'll open up your Bibles, if you have one, uh, 1 John chapter 4, you'll find in the black Bibles ahead of you, you'll look under the chairs, you'll see some black Bibles there. Uh, you can open up to page 1023 if you want to follow along in those in one of those Bibles, 1023, 1 John 4, the series we've called Certainty, and, and what you see from the art, we've, we've talked about how John says it's not enough to just uh, proclaim just a basic head knowledge of the faith, but your heart has to express the truth of the gospel in love. Your hands have to do the truth of the gospel in obedience. And when you see all those things working together, then you know that's a mark of certainty, a mark of truth in the gospel. Uh, when those things are broken up, that's a mark of a false teacher. And so in this congregation, in this context, they had false teachers that had gone out, that had stirred up controversy, and now John is reassuring them. He's reminding them of the certainty that we can have in Jesus. This week, we're calling the sermon this week, Doctrinal Certainty. And what I want to do is I want to just, first of all, prepare our hearts a little bit as we head into this, as we read this text, that remind us that we live in a culture... Uh, that would say it's it's just wrong to be certain about anything. I mean, we live in a culture that does not believe in absolute truth. It's often called pluralism, is uh, the term for this philosophically, that we believe in many truths, many half-truths, everything is kind of true, um, very similar to the first century in the, in the Roman Empire. They said, you can believe in whatever gods you want to, you can have 20 gods, you can have two gods, as long as you bow to Caesar, you can believe whatever you want to. We have a similar context today, and so we just need to be aware of that. Our hearts will bristle against what John is going to say to us this morning. Our hearts are going to push back against it. Our hearts are going to have a hard time with John declaring doctrinal certainty. We looked at this about two months ago when we started our Why Jesus series. Uh, We looked at the same text, and we understood here there's this, this kind of paradox in Christianity where this narrowness of doctrinal certainty actually leads to an openness where we love other people. And John says those two things always go together. 
And so don't be tricked by the culture. Don't be tricked by the brainwashing that's been beat into our heads that you can't be certain nobody has absolute truth. Trust that we do in Jesus. We have certainty. But that shouldn't make us jerks, right? That shouldn't make us closed-minded bigots. That should make us loving. That should make us gracious. So if you'll read with me, you're going to read 1 John 4. It's going to be verses 1 through 12 I'll read. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. Let me pray for us. God, uh, we confess that we have difficulty with some of these ideas. We confess that our hearts are trained to not believe in certainty, to not believe uh, that only the truth of Jesus could be right. And so we pray that you would give us an open mind. God, we just pray that you would... Uh, open us up, that we would be open to who you are. We'd be open to what you have to say. We'd be open to your messengers uh, speaking to us in the scriptures, the apostles, what John has to say here. We we pray that you would teach us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great uh, great teachers of the last century was a guy named Leslie Newbigin, uh, who just had some fantastic, fantastic insights into culture. And one of the things that Newbigin talks about uh, is that when you are pluralistic, meaning you kind of believe in everything, or another way to say it you know, with our title today, when there's uh, cultural uncertainty about truth, that leaves you vulnerable to weird ideas, right? If you're kind of accepting of everything and there's no right or wrong, that leaves you vulnerable, that leaves you open. We see this in a lot of weird ways in our culture that people are trying to find truth. And I wanted to share with you an example that uh, my wife and I were just reading about the other day. We were, were kind of nerds. We were reading a history book for fun the other day. And uh, in this history book, we were talking about kind of the history of westward expansion in, in the U.S. and talking about some of the rituals of Sitting Bull. You may be familiar with Sitting Bull, one of the great Native American Indian chiefs. And uh, this was just an example. You Honestly, you see the same kind of behavior today in many cultures and in many places all across, especially our own culture, um, you, you see a, a seeking for truth. And you'll see because people have rejected the truth of God, then we have to go to very strange uh, rituals. We have to go to very strange behavior in a desperate search for truth. We've said, God, we don't think you're the truth. And then we're truthless and we're wandering around in the dark. And so then we start coming up with strange ways to find truth. Sitting Bull was famous 
for uh, listening to the spirit world through a ritual he called the sun dance. Uh, what he would do is he would paint his entire body yellow. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that, I guess. But he would, he would paint his whole body yellow, and then he would have one of his warriors gouge uh, small pieces of his flesh out, uh, exactly 100 pieces of his flesh out of his arms um, as an offering to the spirits. Uh, and, of course, after gouging 100 pieces of flesh out of his arms, he was bleeding a little bit. Uh, he was bleeding quite a lot, actually. He would shuffle around in his sun dance, looking up at the sun, painted in yellow, bleeding. And he would do this for hours and hours out in the heat, just shuffling, shuffling, and chanting uh, to the spirits and calling on them to give him a revelation. Of course, if you're bleeding and you're shuffling around naked in the sun while bleeding, eventually you're going to wear out, right? And, and so eventually Sitting Bull would just, he would just pass out. He would just collapse. And in that moment, he would collapse. He'd hit the ground, and that's when he believed the spirits would reveal the truth to him. Uh, so he'd get this revelation, this prophecy from the spirits he believed when he would pass out, and then his warriors would splash him with cold water, drink, you know, feed him some water. He would revive, and then he would try to uh, explain what the spirits had revealed to him. I use that illustration because it's an extreme example, but I really think a lot of us do similar crazy things in our life, right? I mean, we, we, we may not, it may not be that obvious. It may not be that obviously strange. It may not be that obviously a pursuit of spirits speaking to us. But in the same way, we're wandering in the dark. We don't know the truth, and we're kind of grasping for it anywhere. And you may have a ritual that you go through, or you may be trying a new thing every week. But what I want to appeal to you is that the God of the universe doesn't require you to, to gouge yourself or to do backflips or to do any kind of trick. If you just ask the Creator, the Great Spirit who made all things, He will communicate His truth to you. All you have to do is ask. All you have to do is ask. And the problem, the barrier between us and God the barrier between us and the spirit world has been bridged by Jesus Christ himself. So the good news of the gospel is, yes, we're separated from truth, we're separated from the spirit world, but Jesus bridged that gap. God came down to us, we don't cut our way up to him. We ask him. He, he comes to us, and he came to us in Jesus. That's the great truth, that's the great hope of Christianity that we don't have to work our way to him, but he's paid the price to work his way down to us, not only to communicate with us, but to save us, to forgive our sins, and to give us the hope of resurrection. The, the first thing that I want us to understand as we look at this text is, is a, an idea that we'll find in verse 1, and I'm calling this section the trendiness of uncertainty. I, I want you to be aware, and I want you to be kind of hyper alert to the reality that you live in a culture that's brainwashing us and and telling us that it's just cool to be uncertain. It's telling us that people that really love well are uncertain. The people that are really open-minded are uncertain. And so just be aware that it's trendy to be uncertain and that the culture is going to be pushing against you and pushing against you, proclaiming to you that if you have certainty of truth, there's something wrong with you. As a matter of fact, in our culture, our culture will associate certainty with Islamic terrorism. Right? That's, we've seen that a lot in the last 20 years, that um, people that are really certain about their religion strap bombs on themselves and kill people. Right? And so then that's then overlaid against Christian uh, certainty, and we're, 
we're told then in the culture that if we're really certain, then we're going to be harsh, hateful, angry people that are hurting others. Well, historically, Christianity has proved otherwise. Historically, Christianity is the religion that's led to the building of hospitals and orphanages. Historically, Christianity is the one truth that has led people to love others. Christianity is the truth that says, God loves us, therefore we love others. Every other system says, you've got a lot of work to do to get yourself to God. Christianity says, God got himself to you in the person of Jesus Christ. So verse 1 says, because of all that, verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. There are many false prophets, many false teachings, many false ideas, many false spirits. I don't want to get sidetracked into the realities of the spiritual world, right? As Christians, we believe there are spirits uh, besides God and besides human beings, right? There's other life out there. We see stories of angels. We see stories of demons. Uh, But Paul encourages us in 1 Corinthians not to really get sidetracked with false gods and false spirits, but to focus on who is the real spirit, who's the spirit we can trust, so there, there is this whole other spirit world Christianity would acknowledge, but we're kind of taught to kind of blow that off and trust the one spirit that's reliable, that's God. Believe him, listen to him, not get caught up in these other spirits, not be looking for angelic visions, but be listening to God and what he's already told us. So he says it this way, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So when a spirit or an idea or a teacher or a prophet speaks to you and says this is the truth or this is an idea you should believe or this is a way to find salvation, you should have discernment. You should be aware. And the the trickiness of the spirit of our age is that it comes in a package of there is no truth, right? And so it's this, this paradox of there's really no truth, but do these five things and you'll be saved or do these three things and you'll be happy. And the spirit of our age says, but there's no real certainty. There's no real truth. Be aware that there's a pushback against us to believe that there's real truth in Jesus. It says, many false prophets have gone out into the world. We need to be careful and we need to be aware and recognize that there is truth. There's a truth about Jesus. There's a truth about goodness. And when we're certain about that, that protects us from the uncertainty of all the other false prophets, from the uncertainty of all the other false ideas out there. Uh, you see how an entire culture can become susceptible to false prophets in the life of Adolf Hitler. Any of you ever heard of Adolf Hitler? I'm trying to use like a broad cultural reference here. So Germany, uh, after World War I, was in a bad place, right? They were struggling, economic recession, depression. They were just hurting. And so there was this vacuum uh, where Hitler was able to rise to power promising salvation promising that he would free their people, that they would rise to power, that they would triumph, that they would overcome their difficulties. And so we need to be aware that when you're going through difficulties, when you're going through hard times, when you're weak, there's a vacuum there and a false prophet will step in and will promise you solutions, will promise you answers. I want to inoculate you against that a little bit by helping you to understand that we are all in hard times, right? 
I mean, some of you may be dying of cancer at this very moment. Others of you may be in the best health in your life. But humanity as a whole, we we live in a broken world. We live in a world of disease. We live in a world of broken relationships. We live in a world of pain. And acknowledging that helps to inoculate us against all these false saviors that pop up saying, well, this is the solution. This is the answer. This is going to help you. This is going to heal you. When you recognize that there's a universal problem and at its root, Jesus always brought it back to the heart. At its root, the problem is the sin in our own hearts. The problem is the sin in our own hearts, and the only solution to that is Jesus. We want to deny the sin in our own hearts and look for an external solution, right? We want to look outside and go, well, it's, you know, it's, it's that system or it's this problem or I need a better job or I need another spouse or I need another spouse after that or you know, whatever it may be. We think it's these other people's problems. It's the sin in our own heart. We're, we're selfish people. We don't love like we should and only Jesus offers the solution to that. I have a picture of Adolf Hitler here to remind you of him. It's kind of creepy. I don't even like looking for pictures of him online. He rose to power promising hurting people that they'd have health and wealth again. That everything would be okay. And so I just want you to pause and think, who are the people, who are the spirits, who are the ideas, what are the paradigms that are luring you right now towards health and wealth? Who's offering that to you? What what commercials are you believing that are saying everything's going to be okay if you buy this product or do this thing or hook yourself up with this person? Only Jesus can really heal us because the problem's on the inside. The problem's on the inside. So recognize that we live in a time and place in our culture that it's trendy to be uncertain. And because it's trendy to be uncertain, we're leaving ourselves open to any idea. We're leaving ourselves open to false prophets. John says there are false prophets out there. There are ideas that are actually wrong. So recognize we live in a culture that doesn't ever want to say anything's right and wrong, which leaves us very vulnerable and leaves us with a lack of alertness to what is right and wrong. John says there is a right and wrong and there's wrong spirits out there. So be aware. Be alert. Don't listen to every prophet. Don't listen to every idea, but reject some of those ideas. The next thing that John gives us is some metrics then of certainty. He's going to give us some some metrics, some boundaries. How do we know what is truth then? How do we understand what's right if we've now been told that there is all kinds of wrong ideas out there, there's all kinds of uncertainty and false prophets and false spirits out there, how do we know what spirit to believe? And so, again, just warning you, your heart's going to push back against this because he's going to get even more narrow here in his formulation. And he's basically going to say, it's just Jesus. You know, the thing that Christians get in trouble for, for being narrow and saying there's only one way, it's Jesus. Well, John says that right here. So there's historical reasons why Christians do this kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, Read verse 2. It says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And we want to say, well, John, I mean, that's fine in the first century, but today we're more open-minded than that, right? We We want to tell John, you're being a little narrow, you're being a little over certain here, you're a little sure of yourself, aren't you, John? But I want to remind you that The Roman Empire in the first century was just as pluralistic as our empire is today. There were just as many false spirits and false gods back then as there are 
today. We package it differently. We talk about it in different terms. We may, we may not you know, call all of our false gods gods. We try to give them other names to try to sound scientific and sophisticated, right? But we still have all these other false gods. And so our culture is really not any different from their culture in the many false prophets, many false ideas. And John comes along and says something that's hard for them to hear and hard for us to hear. He says, there's only one true spirit. It's God. And he's revealed himself through Jesus. Jesus came in the flesh. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Um, so he says there's, there's boundaries here, and those that fit this paradigm are true, and those that don't fit this paradigm are false. Um, again, culturally, we would say, John, you can't say that kind of stuff. I would encourage you, though, that, that he's speaking the truth, and he's speaking the truth in love. I have a picture here of a measuring tape. I've been working on a project, putting some new flooring down, so I have to measure the boards and cut the boards and everything to get it you know, to fit properly. Um, if I don't measure it, it doesn't work, right? It just doesn't fit. We see that in all kinds of things we do in everyday life. We have to be discerning. I have to be discerning about this or it won't work. I have to be discerning about that or it won't work. John is saying the same thing is true in the spiritual realm. You have to be discerning. You have to measure. There are metrics of certainty. And John's metric for different prophets coming in and out, you got these prophets that come in a lot, especially this is what was happening in John's day. They'd come in and say, Jesus is, yeah, we like Jesus. Jesus is cool. But really the Christ? Or did he really come in the flesh? Or was he really real? I mean, isn't he just a great idea? And they would say things like that, which, again, people still say today. Turn on the Discovery Channel or the History Channel, and you can find the 500 other varieties of Jesuses out there that other scholars are uh, encouraging you to consider. Here he's saying Jesus Christ came in the flesh. He was real. This thing happened. It was historical. He, he broke into space and time. He says it this way. Again in verse 2, this is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So if, if there's a confession, Jesus has come, the Messiah has come, He was real, He came in the flesh, that, that's the measurement, right? He fits, that's, a, that's truth. And then He says in verse 3, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. We saw this idea of the Antichrist previously in other verses. It's kind of scary, right? If you've uh, seen end times movies or books, they talk about the Antichrist and this great figure that would set himself up as a false Christ. Um, he sets himself up and says, I'm now the Messiah, um, but he's not the real Messiah, right? He's really uh, operating under the powers of evil. And John throughout the book says, yeah, there's this... There's this character, there's this singular antichrist, right? There's other prophecies that seem to allude to that in Scripture in 2 Thessalonians and in Revelation 13. But John is saying any person that denies Jesus coming in the flesh is antichrist, is against the Messiah, is against the Christ. They're, they're saying there's some other way. So if someone comes to you and says, you don't, you don't need Jesus, you just need a better education. You don't need Jesus, you just need a new spouse. You don't need Jesus, you just need more pleasure. You just need the next drug. He'd say, no, it's Jesus. Jesus is what you need to save you. Jesus is who you need to give you life. 
And because it's it's kind of scary to think about Antichrist and these figures of evil, you know, you might might conjure up uh, images of like, you know, when the zombies come and the apocalypse, you know, and all this kind of stuff. You know, you're getting kind of freaked out. He reassures us here in verse 4. Look at verse 4. He's reassuring. He says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He's saying, first of all, there's there's bad stuff out there. There's people that are saying untruth, that are preaching other ways to be saved. Don't listen to them. Test those spirits. Don't listen to every spirit. But he says, but don't, but don't get all freaked out, right? Like, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You will be safe. You're safe in Jesus. You're going to be okay. So, so we live in this world that is messed up. We live in this world where we do struggle. We live in this world full of untruth, full of false prophets. But he's saying, don't, don't worry. God, God has got you. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Those little children, you're from God. You've, you've overcome them. It's going to be okay. Verse 5, he says, They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We'd say, okay, John, we were kind of following you there for a little while. You're declaring there's certain truth in Jesus. You're saying that's the measure, right? Jesus Christ come in the flesh. That's the measurement. And now... John adds another layer to that, and he says, and, and we're the ones that you should listen to. That's really offensive to our culture, right? I mean, it's, we can kind of get there with, there's truth out there. There is one truth, you should believe it, right? That kind of makes it objective, and it's out there. But Jesus is the Christ. He's the true one. There's other ideas that are false, and there's one idea that's true. We can maybe get ourselves there, but then now John just raised, uh, he just upped the ante, right? He just raised the bar. He made it a little harder for us, and he said, not only is this the truth, right? This is the doctrinal statement. They have to believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, that he was real. But also, we're the ones that say the truth. John is saying, basically, me and the apostles, the guys writing the Bible are the true ones. Again, very offensive in our culture. We say, well, all books are kind of true. And everything, everybody's got some, some kind of insight. And John is saying, no, we're the, we're the official messengers here. Verse 6, we're from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So there's also an official representative team here. We call them the apostles, right? The guys that Jesus set up as his messengers to witness to his resurrection. He sent them out to preach. And we would say we've got the recordings of the apostles here. We've got the scriptures. That's why we say things like God's word is, uh, God breathed. The word inspired literally in the Greek is theopneustos. It's breathed out by God. We would say we, we believe we have the truth of God. We use words like infallible. We believe the apostles themselves did stupid things. They were sinners, right? We can see that in the Gospels. They messed up. But their words that they gave us about Jesus are trustworthy. The message that they gave us is certain. We have doctrinal Certainty And John says that's another metric of certainty. First metric is just the proclamation itself. Jesus came. Jesus came in the flesh. He was real. This thing happened. Second metric is the, the apostles themselves, their doctrine. They were the, the keepers of the message. If people are in agreement with this, they're right. If people are in disagreement with this, they're wrong. 
That's why Bible is our middle name as a church. Grace Bible Church, right? Like we, we believe we need God's grace. And we believe how we understand truth is through His Bible. That's our measure. That's how we know what's right and wrong. That's how we weigh different spirits. That's how we test them is through the Scriptures. It's through the recordings of the apostles of God's true prophets. My question for you is, first of all, do you, do you believe that? And this looks like two different things. If, if you do believe it, then I challenge you to actually pay attention to what it says. Like if you believe that God has actually spoken to us and what He said is true and that the Scriptures are reliable, I challenge you to spend time in this book. I challenge you to ask God, God, teach me. I challenge you to get in one of our Bible studies or classes where you can pray with other people, where you can study the Scriptures and you can begin living your life in conformity the way we like to say it is submitting to the Bible. We purposefully in our mission statement chose the word submit to the Bible because we just thought it sounded harder, right? (laughs) We just wanted to challenge you. Like, are you submitting to the Bible? Are you listening to what he has to say to you? We think it's going to be hard, but we think it's going to be really a beautiful thing in your life. I I never regret the times when I've listened to what God says. When I've not listened to him, those are the things I've regretted. So I challenge you to read it. I challenge you to listen to it. You can get podcasts of the Bible. You can get in Bible studies that we host here at the church and in people's homes. You can read it for yourself. I'd encourage you to, to investigate and start learning the Scriptures for yourself. The other thing is some of you I know don't, don't believe this. Some of you just don't believe it, and that's okay. We've, we've said before we're, we're glad you're here. We're glad that you would uh, actually allow us to, to plead with you about what we believe and to share with you what we believe. So I'd say if you don't believe it, I would still challenge you to read it for yourself. Because what's real easy to happen is that you've listened to the prophets of our age, the scientists, the college professors that say this book can't be trusted. You read two pages and said, yeah, I don't get it, and you put it down. I'd really challenge you to read, to read it for yourself, to, to really test it for yourself. And I would acknowledge there's some parts of it that are easier to understand than others. Right? There's some parts of it that there's greater cultural distance So I'd encourage you to start with easier parts. Start with clearer parts of it. Since we're studying 1 John right now, go back and read 1 John. Test what I've said in in line with what it says. I challenge you to read the Gospel of John, the longer book, the Gospel of John, that was also written by the same guy here, and he uses a lot of the same themes and a lot of the same language, and so it would connect with what we've been studying here in 1 John. But I challenge you to test it for yourself, to, to listen to what God has to say. Don't just say... I don't really want to believe it anyway, and I've had a few people tell me it's not trustworthy, so I'm just not going to give it the time of day. Actually, actually investigate it for yourself. The last thing I want us to see is the surprising fruit of certainty. I, I said this at the beginning, that our culture has taught us that if you're certain about anything, you're going to be mean and kill people, right? That's kind of what our culture teaches us. But the Gospels, both history and the Gospels teach us that if you believe in the certainty of a God that loves you, that's going to give you a very certain and very real love for other people. Because the gospel is not, I'm better than other people, and therefore I'm a part of God's family. That's not the gospel, people. The gospel is, I'm a sinner just like everybody else. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I need the redeeming, dying love of God. A God who took my sin upon himself and gives me his perfect righteousness. And that's what John goes on to explain here in this next section. Look at verse 7. We'll see the surprising fruit of certainty here. 
It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So here again, a test for a false teacher. If they don't actually love people, if it doesn't translate into reality in their life, that's not a teacher to listen to. That's, they're not saying the right things. They may even say the right things for a little while, but if they're not loving people, they can't keep it up. It's not going to keep happening. That well is going to dry up. Saying love has to go along with what people proclaim about Jesus. Verse 9 says, And this is the love of God. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. So he's kind of got some contradictions. John, John speaks this way, right? He says, this is how we've seen love. So we've seen love in, in Jesus coming in the world. And later he says, no one's really ever seen God. And so he's kind of talking uh, in ways that seem contradictory, right? So let's, let's break this down. In the first part he says, verse 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. So we have seen God. We've seen him through Jesus coming into the world. And then down in verse 11, excuse me, verse 12, he says, No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So he's talking about that reality that we live in, that reality that we feel of, I'm separated from God. I haven't seen God. I can't see the truth. I live down here in the spirit world, the heavens, there's this break. The Christian story is that God bridged that gap. He says, the love of God was manifested in Jesus coming down here. And in verse 12 he says, again, no one's seen God. We're all kind of wandering. We're looking for truth. And then he says, when we love each other, people see him. Look at verse 12 again. No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. God God then lives in us, right? Like we're, we're a temple. People, people come to see God manifested in the, the temple of our own lives. People actually see him as we, as we love each other. He, he uses this big word again in verse 10 that we've seen several times over the last few weeks that, that shows us that love is the fruit of what God's done in our life. I have a picture here of fruit. Any of you ever seen a fruit tree before? I know we, we live in this like technological society. So, none, you know, some of you have maybe never pulled fruit off a tree. Anybody here? You ever pulled fruit off of a tree? Some of you have. Okay, not very many. Yeah, not everybody. So fruit grows on trees, right? It doesn't grow in the little refrigerated uh, section at the, the grocery store. But, you know, you feed and water this plant and its roots go down in the ground and the tree grows up and fruit comes out of it. And in Christianity... Uh, the analogy is that as we sink our roots into the love of God, we grow and the fruit of love comes out of our life. And so uh, we differ from some who would say we earn God's love by loving others, right? So there are some historic Christian systems that would, that would get the cart before the horse, so to speak, or get the fruit before the roots and say uh, we earn God's love by loving. And, and we would say, no, we, we disagree with that theology. We agree with them wanting to keep the package together, right? The package goes together. God's love and our love for others goes together. You just got to make sure you get the order right. 
And here it's saying that God loves us first, and because God loves us, we love others. And so our love is the fruit of God working through our life. So it's very important. We want to keep the package together, but we want to keep the order correct. That God is the initiator here. We'll look at this again with this word propitiation. Look at verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So, first of all, he says, just for matter of emphasis, it's not that we loved God, but that He loved us. He's saying, yes, you're supposed to love God, right? He's been talking about that for four chapters. But he's saying, but that's not the, the issue. The issue is God's love for us. That's the... That's where the force is. That's where the power is. is that God's love for us compels us to love Him. So again, he's saying, this is love. N- not us loving God. That's really not love. That just pales in comparison. Real love is God loving us. God loving us. As a result of that, we love Him. He, and he, he explains it here in the second part of verse 10 by saying, He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The propitiation for our sins. Uh, we've seen this word a million times, so y'all are going to like be geniuses on this word here in a while. We've, we've gone over it several times in the last six months. But in other translations, it says sacrifice of atonement. Here it says propitiation. Uh, the original word in the Greek is helasmos and helasterion. It's used uh, different forms in different places. But it's a term that comes from uh, the, the worship of the gods in the first century and previous centuries. You know, the Greek and Roman gods, they'd have these kind of immature, selfish, angry gods, right? If y'all ever read mythology, you know, they were kind of, they were just kind of jerks, right? And, and so then the, the people worshiping those gods would have to do things, make sacrifices to uh, propitiate the gods. That's how the word would be used. They'd have to make sacrifices so that the mean god wouldn't be angry at them anymore. So the word propitiation means you're making the god propitious towards you. And Propitious means happy. I know we don't use either one of those words, right? So you're, you're making the God happy with you. So in, in the context of pagan religion, you've got these immature gods that you can't trust and you have to do tricks, make sacrifices to get these immature gods to be happy with, to bless you, right? You're buying them off. Christianity turns that on its head and it says, first of all, God's absolutely righteous. He's not like these other immature gods. His, his anger towards you is, is just and it's deserved because none of us love each other like we should. None of us make the righteous decisions that we should. And so we deserve his wrath. We deserve his anger, first of all. That's the first place that Christianity differs. Second place is it says we don't make the sacrifices to make him happy with us. We don't have to gouge our flesh to get him to, call, to, to talk to us. But he gave his own flesh. Jesus Christ died in our place. Jesus became the sacrifice of propitiation. Jesus becomes the one that makes the Father happy with us. So that through Jesus, God delights in you. God loves you. And so this image of God, His anger and His hatred, that may be true that He's angry at your injustice, He's angry at your sin, but through Christ, He can be pleased with us. We can see Him as our Father that loves us, that delights in us. And so I want to challenge you to see God that way through Jesus. But by trusting in Him as the sacrifice, you'll understand His love for you. And then that will cause the fruit of love for other people to grow. So that's why I call it the surprising fruit of certainty, is if you're certain that the God of the universe loves you, 
you're certain of that scandalous, unbelievable truth that God delights in you, that's going to change your heart. That's going to change your posture towards other people. You'll want to serve people in love because you recognize that the God of the universe served you in love. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. So certainty, religious certainty about Jesus, doctrinal certainty about Jesus doesn't make us the kind that would then go out and kill others and hate people. It makes us the kind of people that love and are willing to give up our own life for others. That's that's what John is saying here. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So, so if this is really true, if you can be certain about this reality, we should love each other. In verse 12, no one's ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us. And His love is perfected in us. It comes to maturity in us. That's a harvest word. It bears fruit in us. We're going we're gonna to see love come out of our lives. So just two applications I would give you in light of our culture and how divided we are right now. We're more divided than we've ever been as a culture. We're more polarized than we've ever been as a culture. And so I would say, first of all, this surprising certainty causes us to actually be generous to others, to be open-minded towards others, to actually love others, right? We may be closed-minded about truth. I know God loves me through Jesus. That makes us open-minded in our posture towards people because we recognize that we're not better than other people. We're sinners just like everybody else, and we needed a Savior to break in and save us. We needed God's initiating love to come in and love us. So that enables us to take initiating love towards others. And so I'd say one one thing that that does is, uh, even though we may not believe what other people have to say, even though we may disagree, because we have doctrinal certainty, we may not believe other ideas, it should cause us to be gracious in our posture towards them, to be respectful to listen well, to actually want to hear what people have to say. doesn't mean you agree with everything they say, but you should have a, a manner that's like Jesus as well as a message like what Jesus had to say. Jesus' message was he was the Savior, but his manner was one of great patience. The only time Jesus ever got really mad was with the religious hypocrites. With the pagans, he was incredibly patient. With the sinners and all their crazy ideas, he was incredibly patient and kind. Read through the Gospels and, and see how Jesus interacted with people. So I encourage you, be be kind, be patient, be a good listener. And, and then I would say also, this is what's hard in our culture, is be willing to challenge people. Be willing to lovingly disagree. Not because you're arrogant. Think of your certainty about Jesus this way. It's like we're in this starving city where no one has food and God has just dropped a, a great 18-wheeler full of food on you and your home, and, and you've now got the supplies to feed the city. Is it arrogant of you to offer that to other people? I mean, is it is it crazy for you to sit, plead with people and say, no, really, I have, I have something for you. Pray for them, listen to them, be patient, toward, be patient towards them, but, but challenge them. Challenge them that, that you have hope. You have a reason to, to trust, a reason to have hope, because God has manifested his love towards us through Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you've shown us love through your son Jesus, and I pray that you would supernaturally enable us to be a community that displays that love. That as your love was manifest in Jesus, that it would be seen through us. No one around here has really seen God, but as as we love one another, 
your love is perfected in us. You, you abide in us. People will see you through us. So we ask that we would have the privilege of being a part of what you're doing in the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.